I'm not an art person. I've never been. But if I was crossing the street in Paris and the Louvre was on fire, I would I would run in to try to save some of that art there. I don't know why people don't feel like that about nature. Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's critical that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation. And this is season two of Planet Visionaries. As a climber, I've been fortunate enough to see both the beauty and fragility of our planet. That's why I'm proud to be joining Rolex and the Washington Post Creative Group to bring you stories of inspiring people who are helping solve some of the most important conservation issues that we face today. On this episode, I get to talk to Luis Rocha, a marine biologist and deep diver who's exploring depths of the ocean where no one has been before to discover new species and make the case for their protection. Hi, Luis. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. I'm the creator of ichthyology and co-director of the Hope for Reefs initiative at the California Academy of Sciences. So I'm responsible for organizing, maintaining, and studying the very large scientific fish collection we have at the Academy. Can you talk about where you're from exactly? Yeah, so I'm from João Pessoa, Brazil. It's a coastal town. If you think of the, the map of Brazil, that hump of Brazil, the easternmost city in Brazil is where I'm from, João Pessoa. Nice. No wonder you're so into the water. It's like it's all water around you if you're on the right. very edge of Brazil. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So how did you get interested in the study of fish? It all started when I was a child. I had fishes at my house. I had fishes at my grandparents' house. In high school, I think I had something like over, definitely over a thousand gallons of water in my house between outdoor tanks, indoor tanks, marine tanks, freshwater tanks. So I was always very curious about them. And when I was in third grade, I had a class where the the teacher brought in a, a tank with guppies to do a little experiment to show us what the behavior of fish would look like if they changed some physical parameters in the water. I was so enthralled by that uh, experiment that the teacher looked at me and said, you, you, you'll be a good biologist when you grow up. And uh, I, that's when I decided to be a biologist. And, and what is it about fish? Like, what, what, why fish? I don't know if I can put a finger on it. I, I'm just very fascinated by them, by every aspect of them, by their biology, by their behavior, by their ecology, by where they live, by how they live. I find it very interesting how many there are, how many different species of fish there are, the diversity. Are there more diverse species of fish than there are other types of animals? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's more fish species than every other vertebrate combined. So if you put together all of the mammals, reptiles, amphibians, birds, add them all up, there's still less than, than fish. There's about 36,000 species of fish and all of the other vertebrate animals combined, it's just about 30,000. Part of me is like, wow, that's so impressive. And part of me was like, oh, was that just proportional to the amount of water there is on earth because if 70 percent of the earth is water then yeah. you would expect more fish than yeah. than terrestrial that's a really interesting question um, one that i don't get very often but i like it when i do and it's counterintuitive a little bit so yes the biggest habitat on earth is the ocean but the diversity of fish is really concentrated in the ocean so it's not spread throughout the 70 percent of water that the planet is most of the fish are in coral reefs or coastal habitat so they occupy less than 1% of the ocean. So the vast majority of species of fish, they're concentrated in coastal coral reefs and very shallow water. How did you get into swimming, diving, 
you know, was it obvious that you would just go into the ocean? Yeah, because I'm in a coastal town, the main pastime for everybody in my family was going to the beach. And we went like every weekend when there was low tide, I would go looking at the tide pools. And then from there, I went to snorkeling. And then from there, as soon as I could hold a tank on my back to scuba diving, and then from there to scuba diving a little deeper and then a little deeper and just this progressively becoming more curious, finding out more things and wanting to find out even more. That's interesting. I wonder what it is about some people that just want to keep exploring like that, you know, keep learning new things, like always go around the next corner, dive a little deeper. It's like, I do wonder if some of that's a little innate, people are just more curious. Maybe, maybe, yeah. The deeper diving was driven by curiosity, by trying to to find something that nobody has found before. So when I started my biology course and you start talking to the professors and you tell them that you want to be a fish biologist, the first thing they tell you is that you have to study freshwater fish. Because as I said, half of the species of fish in the world are in freshwater, uh, but I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So when everybody was pushing me to study freshwater, I was like, no, 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 I want to study marine fish. I want to do it by diving. And coincidentally, that's also when the first dive shop in my hometown kind of opened and started doing frequent dive courses. So I became a dive master with them. In my days off, I'll take the boat from the dive shop out for diving with one of my buddies, and we would go look for interesting fish, sometimes go spear fishing, sometimes go take pictures of fish, sometimes try to go dive deep. So it was always a mix of ocean and fish. I don't really like the ocean at, at all. I don't really like swimming that much. But if you substitute the mountains for everything you're saying, I'm like, oh, that's my whole life. It's like <laughs> right. walking around the mountains. So but, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you reach a place where nobody has ever been to before and you look mm-hmm. at it and you, you get like that sensation of awe and and inspiration. I get the same thing when I get to a reef that nobody has seen before. What did it feel like the first time you went diving? I don't know if I have been asked that. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make a confession here that I think it's going to serve as a lesson for some people. The first time I went diving, I didn't even get in the water. I was so seasick that I I didn't jump in the water. Classic. Exactly, right? So I took my first open water dive course and we had pool sessions and it was all fantastic, all great, all fun and games. And then I get to the boat and half an hour into the trip to the dive site, I'm puking everything I had. And I was so bad, I was such in bad shape that I had to stay laying down in the boat and I didn't hit the water. <laughs> That's amazing. Right, right. But I, you know, I pushed through it somehow. Um, <laughs> the next week I went again and I was a little bit less sick, but I was still sick, but I managed to dive. And um, what I happened was that I got used to functioning while seasick. And now I don't get seasick anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you made your progression in, in diving, at what point did you start diving super deep? Yeah, so earlier than I was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would, I would expect no less with your right. enthusiasm for fish and the number of tanks you had and all that. Exactly. I, mean, I would expect no less. And so what makes the deep diving so challenging? In a nutshell, it's the physiological interactions of the gases with the body. So because nitrogen and oxygen become narcotic and toxic at depth when you breathe them under pressure, you have to replace them with helium. So we had to add helium to decrease the proportion of oxygen and nitrogen that we're breathing. And helium is a very expensive gas. So expensive that if we're doing like a dive at 400 feet or so, 120 meters, every breath you take costs $10, $15. If you're oh. breathing, yeah, if you're breathing helium. Um, so better hold your breath. <laughs> exactly, right? So to avoid that, we use a rebreather. 
that uh, apparatus that when you exhale, instead of the gas going out as bubbles, it comes back into the system. And then there's a filter that removes the CO2 and oxygen sensors that analyze the, the amount of oxygen that you're breathing and then add only the oxygen you need. Mm-hmm. But that's so complicated. That's like a exactly. computer running, you know, hundreds of feet under sea. That seems so stressful to me, though, if you're trying to do real scientific work and you have to keep remembering to add oxygen and you're right. hundreds of feet underwater. Yeah, but because we do so much training, that, that, that really becomes... Second nature. Second nature, yeah. Luis's love of deep-sea diving has led him to explore the undiscovered coral reefs of the Indian Ocean. What's the difference between the shallow reefs, or like what I think of as a coral reef, and the deeper reefs where, where you're studying? The key difference is light. So the deeper you go in the water column, the less light there is, because the water functions as a filter. So the deeper you are, the less light there is. The technical term for the zone we dive in is mesophotic, medium or middle light. So basically in the shallow reef, the primary production is driven by the sunlight that fuels photosynthesis. Because we're so much deeper, there's still some light there, but there's not enough light for photosynthesis. So there's a lot of invertebrates, there's a lot of sponges. Those are the base of the ecosystem, the base of the food chain Hmm. on those depths. But there's... The building blocks of the ecosystems are not corals, like the, like the shallow coral reef. Still built by corals, but not by corals that are growing today. Hmm. What do you mean? Like ancient corals? Yes. Oh. The earth goes through glacial cycles. And when the sea level drops, if you think about the sea level being mm-hmm. uh, 200, 300 feet below what it is today, the coral reef grew 200, 300, 300 feet below present sea level, when the sea level rose back up, those, those corals, they can't move to come up shallow. So they stayed behind, they died, and their skeletons became the matrix of this deep coral reef that we're seeing today. Interesting. So really, you're uh, studying shallow reefs that have just, you know, like very old, very old shallow reefs. Right, exactly. So what brought you to the Maldives? The Maldives is one of those black holes of studying deep reefs. So almost, I don't know, 99.5% of everything we know about coral reefs comes from the shallow reefs. And a very tiny portion of science that we know about reefs comes from the deep reefs. But the Indian Ocean in general is the least known ocean in terms of deep reefs. And the Maldives within the Indian Ocean is, is even less known. There's no scientists that have been there before doing what I do. And And why do you feel like it's important to explore the deep reefs in the Maldives? So up until 10, 15 years ago, before people started actively exploring those deep reefs, there was a general sense that people believed that those deeper reefs, they were refuge for shallow reef communities because they're so hard to reach. So because they're hard to reach by divers, everybody assumed that they were hard to reach by human impacts. And the Mm. more we study them, the more we see that's not the case. A lot of the impacts that are really damaging shallow reefs, we're seeing them starting to damage the deep reefs as well. And and what are those impacts? Overfishing, pollution, sedimentation. I can't remember for the past five years a dive that I did that I haven't seen a piece of plastic Mm. at 300, 400, 500 feet depth. Mm. There's a lot of uh, fishing line that we see at those depths. And we think that the physical destruction of the reef by fishing or anchor lines 
is more damaging to deeper reefs than it is to shallow reefs because the, the because, because they can't of the, regrow. Yes, because yeah. of the sunlight. If you impact a deeper reef with a, an anchor line, for example, it's going to take a much longer time to recover than than a shallow reef. Deeper reefs are just fundamentally more fragile than than shallow reefs. Yeah, I think so. It's counterintuitive because you think they're deep, so they'd be more protected, but they're actually more fragile and that they can't really recover as quickly. Right, right, exactly. So we are seeing more and more bleaching events at deep reefs. So there's all kinds of ramifications and, and, and negative responses to climate change, even at deep reefs. And so is the hope that through your work, you can get the deeper reefs protected as well, the same as the shallower reefs? That would be the ultimate goal, yeah. yeah. And, and how does that happen? With a lot of community support <laughs> and community participation, I think the, the last thing I want to do is, is go to a place like the Maldives and, and tell them and dictate that they have to protect their, their deeper reefs. We're in full partnership with the Maldives Marine Research Institute. We have to do everything in, in full partnership and then have the conservation side of it be initiated by the community. Yeah, and so how do you work with the local organizations? All of these new species that we're finding on the deep reefs in the Maldives, we are naming them together with Maldivian uh, uh, scientists and using the, the unconventional approach of naming those species. Instead of using Latin and Greek names, we use local names to name them. That's cool. Is that a first? Yeah, it was a first for the Maldives, but it's something that we, our group has been doing for a while because we realized that there's no need to do it traditionally anymore. So when taxonomy first started in the 1700s, 1800s, there was no internet. There was not a lot of communication between scientists. So this idea of having the, the names in Latin was because back then, everybody, wherever we were from, if you're an, an affluent family, yeah, yeah, yeah. you yeah. had to learn Latin and Greek. Yeah, of course. So if, of you, course. if you put a Latin name on a species, technically anybody in the world would know what it means. But today that makes absolutely no sense. So we started <laughs> doing this for a while. We put a lot of Rapa Nui names in the species we found in, the, in Easter Island, for example. We have species with Portuguese names. We have species with Tagalog names that we described from the Philippines. So everywhere we go, we try to use local language and local knowledge to help us name the species. And that gives local communities immediate ownership over the species because they see a name that they recognize. Mm -hmm. That makes complete sense. That does seem like a much better way to, to work on conservation. Right. Creating strong partnerships with the local community is fundamental to the success of Luis's conservation efforts. When you received the Rolex Awards for Enterprise in 2021 for the work in the, the Maldives, do you remember how, how it felt to get the news? It was super exciting. And um, I think it was one of the proudest moments in my career because it's one thing to get financial support to do this this work it's another thing to get media visibility mm. and i i knew that rolex award specifically was going to bring me a lot of media visibility that which was going to eventually help the, the deeper reefs in a big way that's cool through the rolex awards for enterprise have you connected with any of the other laureates i've been talking to uh, my cohort which i just met just two two months ago three months ago we went to geneva and we met in person for the first time and uh, Gina, the, the speleologist, she, she, she's working on, on caves in, in Greenland. She's fascinated by the fact that the corals that I'm looking at were corals that were alive 
10,000 years ago when the sea level was lower and she wants to look at growth rates on those corals by coring their, their skeletons. So we're talking about maybe collaborating in a project. Oh, that's cool. I spoke with Gina Mosley on our last episode and was pretty impressed by the work she's doing in Greenland. So how else has the award impacted your work? The work in the Maldives has been the most publicized I've ever had before. There's already talk in the Maldives about extending their network of protected areas to include more deeper reefs because the Maldivian species has a Maldivian name. (laughs) So they're all proud of having a Maldivian species being described by a Maldivian scientist. So everybody in the Maldives knows about this. So it's Mm. like having an enormous, enormous impact. The media is definitely making a difference. Luis's love of the natural environment keeps him dedicated to spending his life protecting it. You know, what are your hopes for the future of your work? The plan is to have as many Maldivian scientists involved in this as, as we possibly can and do everything in collaboration with the Maldives Marine Research uh, uh, Institute. The Maldives government is talking about creating a, a natural history museum similar to, to the academy here. So we have all kinds of different partnerships going on, thanks in mostly to the, the Rolex Award that kind of allowed me starting the work there. That's cool. What advice would you give to somebody who's interested in the same kind of work? Don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> it requires a lot of dedication. It requires a lot of a training uh, to do the deep diving. But if you're, if you're curious and you have the explorer mentality, you just have to keep exploring. Sometimes I have a glimmer of the same sensation of, of discovery and, and exploration. When I'm looking at a data set and I find something interesting, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is a really nice discovery. And I get, it's not the same as finding any species, but it's, it's, it's in the same ballpark, let's put it that way. <laughs> what you're describing is, is if you have a passion for it, just follow the, the passion. I can't help but thinking about climbing every time you, you're, you're talking about this because it really is similar. It's like, you know, there are many different paths, but if you're excited about it and you're willing and and you love doing it enough, then you're able to put in the time, you're able to put in the effort, you know, you're able to develop the skills and then, you know, you can kind of like find your own way to to, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And so what are you hoping that the, the next generation will do with your work? One of the questions I get asked a lot is, is why do we need to protect those ecosystems? And, and to me, that question makes almost no sense because I can't think of a reason why we shouldn't protect them. To me, it's almost like I don't, I'm not an art person. I've never been. But if I was crossing the street in Paris and the Louvre was on fire, I would, I would run in to try to save some of that art there. I don't know why people don't feel like that about, the, about nature. Everything to me looks like a, a, a work of art. It's a pro- they are a product of hundreds of millions of years of evolution. And um, we can't be the generation that lets that go. We have to um, keep fighting to keep everything alive. That's a that's a really interesting analogy because I'm also not really an art person, but I too would run into the burning Louvre because yeah. you know, you're sort of like, yeah, it's a certain moral obligation. That was marine biologist and deep diver Luis Rocha. I'm Alex Honnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. If you liked what you heard, please like, subscribe, and leave a review to help others find it. And if you enjoyed this episode, check out episode five of this season, where we spoke with Gina Mosley and Francesco Sauro, two scientists who are exploring the world's undiscovered caves. On the next episode, 
I'll be joined by conservation biologist Rinzen Funzak Lama, who's enlisting local people in Nepal to help preserve the region's threatened species. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the next generation of environmental innovators at rolex.org.